We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. So this is an interesting two chapters. Yeah. So one of the things I think, one of the key things that the early saints are dealing with here and the early leadership is how do we continue this restoration, this new knowledge we're gaining and correction, but also not fall prey to false teachings into and, and it's i think there's a lot of individuals in the that encounter people that are good in of good intentions but aren't necessarily following the path or the revelations of the lord or you can be led astray through good intentions i think no one is trying to to do terrible things but it begins a little bit with you know with pride, with not following the prophet. And we're going to see this. This is going to be a topic of the early church quite a bit. There's a lot of individuals who gain power, prominence, position, and follow stray. You know? Yeah. Well, so section 49 is basically about the main characters, Signor Egden, Parley P. Pratt, Lehman Copley. Um, and Lehman Copley is the most recent convert of those three, and he is an ex-shaker. And the reason they're called shakers is because of their unique way of worshiping. Um, they did a lot of uh, physical shaking and a lot of like choreographed kind of dancing and stuff like that when they received the the influence of the Holy Ghost in their meetings. And so they kind of got that nickname, and it stuck. Um, and just like I think anybody who finds something that they feel to be true and is beneficial to their life, they want to go and share it with the people they care about. I think he wanted to go and take the the newly found gospel under the revelations of Joseph Smith to his friends, the Shakers. And so they were actually directed by revelation to go and visit a community of the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing, which is called the Shakers, in North Union, Ohio. And really, Copley wanted to go and teach to the leadership of his old religion and also to the people. And they got an opportunity. They went and met with the main guy in charge in that area, uh, Ashbel Kitchell. And he gave them permission to go and preach to his people. And they did. And there were some pretty fundamental things that were different between the Shakers and the members of the church and in their beliefs and in their actions. Uh, some of the biggest ones were obviously um, Shakers didn't believe that baptism was 100% necessary for salvation. 
and also their means of, like I said, expressing the influence of the Holy Ghost was very different. And eventually, there's also a lot to do with celibacy. They started talking about celibacy as being uh, the ultimate way to be a, a devout believer. And of course, probably the biggest thing was Anne Lee. Uh, Mother Anne Lee, they called her, who they believed was the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. And that had already happened and that they were kind of in a in an elevated state ever since she came and and left. And there there were some similarities, though, too, that they believe they believe that there was an apostasy yep. they believe in continuous revelation. But I don't know, to me, it's like it's well intentioned. And last lesson, we talked about the gifts of the Spirit mm-hmm. you know, and how the Lord had counseled the saints to say, hey, these gifts of the Spirit are great, but they are to the benefit of others. You know, they're, they're to draw people to Christ. Yeah, just that they they got revelation that they needed to go and, and teach to these people in, Fort, in North Union and um, 18 miles from Kirtland. So it's like their next door neighbors, essentially. I mean, 18 miles away was kind of a, a long distance back then. But at the same time, you're looking at this is the frontier you know, <laughs> at the time. And so if there's a population of people 18 miles away, they might as well be your next door neighbors. And they, in general, up until this point, had pretty good trade relations and they got along pretty well. There wasn't like any rivalry between the two groups. But they got this chance to go preach and they kind of went and they they taught things and they had they gave the revelation uh, that they got from Joseph Smith to the Shakers. And they were kind of like, OK. Um, we're not really feeling this too much. <laughs> yeah. um, it says in the Joseph Smith Revelations book, it says John Whitmer, for instance, later wrote that the assigned elders went and proclaimed according to the according to the revelation given to them. But the Shakers hearkened not to their words and received not the gospel at that time. Kitchell, by contrast, recorded a detailed account of the visit. He reported that the group tarried all night. In the course of the evening, the doctrines of the cross and the Mormon faith were both investigated. The next day, 8th of May, Pratt arrived from Kirtland, and the delegation spoke to congregated Shakers after their morning Sabbath meeting. Rigdon reportedly declared to the congregation he had a message from the Lord Jesus Christ to his people, to this people, and explained to his hearers that it was a written message. When he obtained leave leave of the Shakers, he commenced to read aloud, apparently verbatim, this revelation. And Kitchell wrote that his people indicated they were fully satisfied with what they had, and wished to have nothing to do with either them or their Christ. On hearing this, Rigdon professed to be satisfied and put his paper by. Basically saying, all right, well, I did what I was supposed to do. I gave them the revelation. They said, no thanks. And he just kind of was like, all right, next, let's move on. Uh, Parley P. Pratt, though, <laughs> he was not satisfied with that response. He arose and commenced shaking his coattail. He said he shook the dust from his garments as a testimony against us that we had rejected the word of the Lord Jesus. After this contentious exchange, Pratt departed immediately for Kirtland while Rigdon stayed for supper before departing, and Copley spent the night in North Union. The encounter apparently fulfilled Pratt's commission to preach to the Shakers because Revelation dated following Monday. the following Monday, assigned Pratt a different missionary companion and directed him to go forth among the churches and strengthen them by the word of exhortation. So the sad thing about this is that Copley, Lehman Copley, who had found the truth and wanted to go share it with his former brethren, the Shakers, um, was basically called out by um, Kitchell 
and told, hey, you know, you should know better. You had the truth. And then you went off and found this other thing and you should be ashamed of yourself. And he started putting more stock into that. And he actually ended up leaving the church and going back to the Shakers before too long. And you kind of see how this didn't really go according to what their plans were. I think they wanted to go and say, hey, you guys got a lot of things right. Here's a couple things that you need to think about because baptism is important and, you know, we need to uh, still have families and stuff like that. Um, but they were rejected and it really kind of uh, declined from there, their interactions. And I think it's interesting because if you know anything about the Shakers today, they still exist. Um, there are two of them. And they're like in their 90s. And it's because of the whole celibacy thing. This staunch, like the most devout believers were celibate. And it's like, that will not continue. You can't have a thriving, faithful religion when you're not having children. It no. just can't continue. You know, one of the main things in this section that the Lord talks about is in verse 15, 16 and 17, where he says, and verily I say unto you that whoso forbiddeth to marry is not ordained of God, for marriage is ordained of God unto man. Wherefore it is lawful that he should have one wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, and all this that the earth might answer the ends of its creation, and that it might be filled with the measure of man according to the creation before the world was made. I, I found that really interesting that it, it, at the end of verse 16 it says, that the earth might answer the end of its creation. And I was thinking, like, what is the earth? What is the earth's purpose? You know, and it is a place for Heavenly Father's children to have their second estate. You know, we used to talk about the first estate as the pre-earth life, the second estate as mortality, and the third estate like after mortality, right? And I think and that's really interesting because coupled with that belief that they had, that the Shakers had, that they shouldn't marry, or that uh, being cel celibate was the highest honor or highest level of discipleship, right? They also had this belief that you shouldn't eat any meat, you know? Um, and, and the Lord also speaks to that. He, he talks about in verse 18, in 19, he says, For whoso forbiddeth to obtain for meats, that man should not eat them. The same is not ordained of God. For behold, the beasts of the fields and the fowls of the air, and that which cometh to the earth is ordained for the use of man for food and for raiment, that he might have an abundance. And it's funny that, once again, we're talking about the purpose of the earth. And that in the, in the earth, you have plants and you have animals and things. For us is to use wisdom in using all of them, you know. And he goes on to say, the Lord goes on to say, I thought verse 20 was really interesting because it said, but it is not given to one man that one man should possess that which is above another, wherefore the world lieth in sin. I thought that was an interesting, I, I try to understand what that means. And he's talking about food, raiment, in, in verse 19, that that the fowls of the air and, you know, but it is not given the man to possess that which is above another. And I wonder if it's, if that's specifically calling out greed or trying to control 
these substances that the Lord has has deemed are for everyone, right. that others may not get any or might not have an abundance. That only you can have an abundance and not others have an abundance. And then in verse 20, uh, I mean 21, he specifically says, But woe be unto that man that sheddeth blood or that wasteth flesh and hath no need. And so now you're talking a little bit more about greed and gluttony in a way. Yeah. Or I'm not trying to shame anybody, but like hunting for sport as opposed to hunting for harvesting the animal and using it, you know. Because some of these beliefs that people have are born out of a good sense, a good a good intentions. Hey, we don't want to eat meat because we don't want to harm another living thing. Right. But just as in a lot of things, the Lord is giving us a way to be like he's explaining us the principles. And the principle is the earth was created for God's children to have their second estate, to be able to marry and populate it and to pass this time of mortality. You know, if we don't look, if we don't understand the pre-earth life and that there is a life after this and that there's a purpose to our current existence, then, yeah, we can get led away or carried away into well-intentioned meaning but false teachings you know what i mean yeah and and i think it's interesting that that they need to be told this in a way that's i mean it's super clear the the earth needs to fulfill the purpose of its creation you should not forbid people from using the earth for positive means but also don't be unrestrained don't just kill the kill don't have just an overabundance and you are preventing other people from participating as well. Like it's for everyone. And when managed properly, everyone will have enough. Yeah. We don't want to cause unnecessary harm to other living things, but at the same time, like the earth is there to be used and it is there to be supplies and, and whatever for, for people's lives. I find it interesting also as it, as we talk about families and as we talk about marriage these are really important things that I don't think would have been brought up in this way, this clearly, had they not gone to the Shakers. It seemed like maybe a failed mission. We have to go to the Shakers. We're going to go teach them. Probably P. Pratt rebukes all of them, says, you know what, you're all condemned because you rejected this. The whole the guy ends up, you know, Copley ends up leaving the church and going back to the Shakers. And it looks like from the outside, if you just look at that at face value, that was a total disaster, right? But we come out with some very, very important truths here in section 49. Stuff that we that they were that were shared with the Shakers and stuff that was going to be relevant to the saints, especially in regards to marriage and family. And there's going to be tendencies. That the Shakers aren't the only religion to practice celibacy. There are a lot of other religions, including Catholicism and some other ones that people dedicate themselves to God. They dedicate themselves to service they dedicate themselves in different ways to being more uh holy or whatever and they one way is by abstaining from uh, marriage or sexual activity at all and the lord is saying that is not really what i'm talking about when i when i'm asking for your devotion it also creates a caste system yeah uh for example if if you truly believe in this conversion that or this principle that no one should um, have 
relations, let alone have children, then if you are successful enough in teaching that to everybody in the world, then we have one generation and everybody's dead, you know? Yep. So you're almost in a sense denying the power to create life, which is a sacred power. That's why God gives the law of chastity around that power so that children may be raised in a home with a loving mother and father, you know, that they, that as a child, you will be given a good example and good principles and that as you grow, you're able to make mistakes and learn for yourself. And then you then can pass on your learnings to your children. If, if the, the, this law of celibacy or this principle of celibacy just kind of flies, it's kind of says that we get to decide when God's children are done coming to earth. You know, in President, um, not President, but Elder Holland's talk of soul symbols and sacraments, he talks very much about there's two powers that God puts the greatest commandments again around is how a spirit comes into the earth and how a spirit leaves the earth. And he's talking about the law of chastity and he's talking about murder or, or killing or shedding of blood, right? And because it's kind of like he reserves that timing for himself. And we, you know, I think a lot of times when we read in the scriptures that the Lord has to kind of press the reset button on uncivilization, whether it's the flood, whether it's the Lamanites with the Nephites, it's kind of like when parents cannot provide the minimal instructions to their kids, I think that's when the Lord steps in and uh, civilization is ripe for destruction, you know? Yeah, it's it's interesting how we look at it as a, a very practical thing. Well, you have to have children to be able to continue on a, a religion or a faith, but also like you were saying, there's there's underlying things beyond that that make um, not only marriage but also having your children important. And I don't know. I think that we we got we got those messages from the Lord in this way that maybe we would not have gotten any other way had they not had to go and preach to the Shakers at that time. You know, the people that were saying none of this is necessary, baptism not necessary, marriage isn't necessary. And the Lord's saying, let me let me give an example to all of you and show you what can happen to people if you stop doing this stuff. You know, here we are uh, several years later. And we've got 16 million members and growing and going strong and the shakers are down to two. And that's just because the nature of that celibacy. Right. You think that we you think that we as just humans, we like being special and exclusive. Oh, yeah. We like the idea that even within discipleship, you know, it seems like there's like this tier that they were trying to reach that even a greater disciple doesn't just keep the commandments, but we even abstain from these things. <laughs> and you get to a point where you're led to an extreme that is not correct. And that alone, like shooting beyond the mark, like we've been told in the Book of Mormon about the Israelites, that they did not see the meaning of the law of Moses so they took the law of Moses to such an extreme as, you know, the Pharisees and Sadducees and all that, you know, that they missed the point altogether, you know. 
Well, I think we start to see that actually. We start to see that happening in Section 50. Um, similar similar type thing, types of things, because in Section 50, Oliver Cowdery and a few missionary companions, they go to teach the American Indians in the territory just west of Missouri. And then several leaders among the Ohio converts departed as well. Um, Edward Partridge and Sidney Rigdon traveled to New York soon afterward to meet with Joseph Smith. And the new church members in Ohio uh, didn't really have an experienced leader for a while. They were kind of, everybody left to go do other stuff, and they were kind of on their own. And uh, <laughs> when John Whitmer got there in January of 1831, this is what he wrote about what he saw. The enemy of all righteous had got hold of some of those who professed to be his followers because they had not sufficient knowledge to detect him in all his devices. When Parley P. Pratt, one of the missionaries who taught the original Ohio residents, uh, arrived, he got back to Kirtland in spring of 1831. He saw what he wrote as a new and strange behaviors he saw in the new church. As I went forth among the different branches, some very strange spiritual operations were manifested, which were disgusting rather than edifying. Some persons would seem to swoon away and make unseemly gestures and be drawn or disfigured in their countenances. Others would fall into ecstasies and be drawn into contortions, cramp, fits, etc. Others would have visions and revelations which were not edifying and which were not congenial to the doctrine and spirit of the gospel. In short, a false and lying spirit seemed to be creeping into the church. And then the, uh, <coughs> the Painesville, Painesville Telegraph, which is a local newspaper in the area, wrote, immediately after Mr. Rigdon and the four pretended prophets left Kirtland, a scene of the wildest enthusiasm was exhibited, chiefly, however, among the young people. They would fall as without strength, roll upon the floor, and so mad were they that even the females were seen in a cold winter day, lying in the bare canopy of heaven with no couch or pillow but the fleecy snow. <laughs> so, here's the thing. I, I think that, when, like you were saying, I think these people had good intentions. They wanted to really experience something extraordinary. And they were not satisfied with just the feeling of the still small voice. Also keep in mind, it was a lot more common to have stuff like this happen in religious meetings back then. It happens in some religions today, uh, where they receive the Holy Ghost, they have very physical reactions, they speak in tongues, there's different things that happen to them. And I think without the guidance of direct leadership, people probably started to try and expand upon what they had learned. They tr they probably tried to, you know, say, I, look at this, I'm, I'm very in tune with the spirit, it has overcome me. And like you were saying, do they like to feel special? Do they like to feel unique? There's some drive behind that as well. I think that makes you say, I don't feel the spirit like everyone else. I don't just feel the spirit and go, oh, that's nice. It overpowers me. It takes me over and I can't control myself. You know, it's almost like I, I, I'm i better at it than anyone else. And then it can kind of go out of control. Yeah. I, and then those descriptions, wow. <laughs> Imagine being in that room, like you walk back, you get back to what you consider is your home base, you know, after you've been out somewhere, you come back to the congregations and everyone's doing that, and you're just like, what on earth is going on? Well, it's also like, I look at the priesthood and the priesthood keys, and it's not only the key, the individual that holds the priesthood keys, they hold the power and authority to judge and to execute 
ordinances and but it's also knowledge priesthood keys come with knowledge and those that hold the keys it's their right and their mandate to keep the knowledge pure and keep the doctrine straight and to teach the correct principles and you see that in the book of mormon when jacob you know he in in, in jacob he, he goes and says if i didn't tell you the consequences of sin it would come upon my head you mm. know what i mean and th there's also like as when they are when that's why it's so important these leaders are called to positions and are given priesthood authorities and keys as kind of watchmen on the tower and it's not because people cannot govern themselves but it's because we have a tendency to be susceptible to these in, in verse two and three it kind of says uh the lord says uh behold i say unto you there are many spirits which are false spirits which have gone forth in the earth deceiving the world and also satan has sought to deceive you that he might overthrow you and then in verse 22 it says wherefore he that preaches and he that receiveth understand one another and both are edified and rejoice together and that which doth not edify is not of god and is darkness that which is of god is light and he that receiveth light and continueth in god receiveth more light and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day and that's such an outstanding teaching in scripture because to me, what I read in there is that which does not edifies not as God in his darkness. And when we share darkness as light with each other, you're kind of saying, I know something and I can't explain to you what it is, but just do what I do. Like, you, you know, and the, the Lord, the way that he teaches with light is he teaches a principle that you can understand at your level. And then he gives you a principle that enhances that one. And it's line upon line, little by little. You're learning addition, then you learn subtraction, then you learn multiplication and division and fractions, geometry, calculus, you know, until you know it all and see how it all relates. I think we attribute some of these powers as like these moments of ecstasy and greatness, but it's like, are you, are you, is your understanding of agency correct? Are you exercising your agency? Are you praying? Are you understand your baptismal covenants, you know, the sacrament, you know, these key things. And then, you know, little by little, it, it's interesting to me because this seems pretty ridiculous, these stories of people doing shapes, howling like a wolf, shaking, what, doing whatever, right? But it's in here because to them, this wasn't that uncommon, you know? And it is uncommon compared to the gospel like what's the real intention of these gifts once you understand the intention then seeing the counterfeits you you'll never be able to tell all the counterfeits apart you just have to know what the actual spirit feels like anything that doesn't edify is not of god and that's what god is trying to point us to is if you follow the gospel commandments don't overcomplicate things and you feel the spirit in your life and you have a change of heart then that's the biggest inoculation against being deceived but if you're not doing those things it'll be very easy to be tempted by all of these other flashy things that come about and i feel like sometimes in our church we chase sensational stories 
or sensational feelings. Like we want to know about the three Nephites. We want to know about this. But it's like the greatest miracle we can all sense. It's not one we witness. It's one we feel inside our own hearts when they change. When we are following the gospel and our heart begins to change, there is no greater witness. You know, all those other ones, just like Laman and Lemuel, they experienced a lot of miracles because of the faithfulness of Lehi and Nephi and Sam, right? But it didn't change their heart to the point where it actually they became numb to it. They started discrediting how great, because the words never sank into their hearts. And I think that's why, you know, if we want to be inoculated against being led astray, it isn't we have to be ever vigilant. It's we have to just be doing what we should be doing. I, th- I think it also bears testimony to the necessity of a prophet that's constantly receiving revelation. John Whitmer, he he kind of gave a little bit of backstory to Section 50, kind of what I read before, but also he elaborates on that. He wrote, some had visions and could not tell what they saw. Some would fancy to themselves that they had the sword of Laban and would wield it as expert as a light dragoon or would act like an Indian at the act of scalp in the act of scalping. Some would slide or scoot on the floor with the rapidity of a serpent, which they termed sailing in the boats to in the boat to the Lamanites preaching the gospel and many other vain and foolish maneuvers that are unseeming and unprofitable to mention. Thus the devil blinded the eyes of some good and honest disciples. These things grieved the saints of the Lord and some conversed together on this subject and others came in and we were at Joseph Smith Jr., the Sears, and made it a matter of consultation. For many would not turn from their folly unless God would give them a revelation. Therefore, the Lord spake to Joseph. I mean, he even says it in there. Some good and honest disciples, people that want to be good. They want to be good disciples of Christ. And they honestly felt like by doing this stuff, I am... I'm really giving myself over to the spirit. I'm really experiencing what it means to be one with God, right? And the only reason that they would change and stop doing that is if the prophet spake to them. And that's when he gets revelation for section 50, basically saying, hey, none of this is necessary. Please stop, you know? (laughs) And I'm sure that there were some people that were probably embarrassed and maybe even were like, you know what? You don't know, and I'm going to continue doing it or whatever. But I hope that most people probably went, okay, all right, now that we have the revelation, now we know that there's other ways to do this. The parallel I want to draw to us today is we don't have this issue right now in the church. We don't have people pretending like they're sailing to the Lamanites on the floor in sacrament meeting. We don't have people fake wielding the sword of Laban, you know, because they have the spirit. But there are certain things that we do that are just traditions or customs that we don't want to let go of because we are comfortable with them. We like them and they really have nothing to do with the gospel or they have no basis in doctrine that are kind of like we've started to make them feel like we have to do them. The missionary farewell. The missionary farewell was like a sacrament meeting devoted to one person and it was it became it originally started out as so and so is going to go on a mission we're going to have them speak their parents speak it's the it, last kind of desires it was a desire to let this individual know the whole ward is behind you on this yeah I want to support you you're doing a good thing go make us proud you know that kind of thing you know and i'm sure 
there are many of them that were done in the right spirit and good, but it gets lost into becoming a production or an expectation or a substitution, or even those who don't have that opportunity as if they are a less missionary or they're less capable. Well, and you're also kind of hijacking the most important meeting that we have, the sacrament meeting, to become about, you know, when Johnny was five, he dumped a bowl of cereal on his head and it was so cute. And here's a picture in my slideshow, you know, and it's like, what are we doing? You know, and now he's all grown up and going off on a mission. And it, yeah, it became a devotional to a person rather than here, we're, we've got your back. You have us here as your stalwart ward. You're going off on your mission, and we're proud of you, you know. And the church kind of came in and said, you know what, we're going to dial back the, the, well, the missionary farewell a little it's, bit. <laughs> it's not uncommon that the brethren and the prophet, and in essence, the Savior, reaches down and prunes our trees a little bit. Just yeah. a little pruning. And it happens all the time. Like, hey, one of those actions is we need to stop thinking about teaching people in their home because it limits it's it started to limit our interactions and actually started to limit the the this principle behind it and switch our just adjust our mindset to ministering where now that you minister it's not home teaching it's interactions with that person in any scenario it right. could be online it could be this way it, it was more we have kind of we pigeonholed our way into like it has to be this specific way in this format. You know, we say a prayer, we second, uh, first article in the enzyme, you know, then we ask you, is there anything we can do for you? And then we leave <laughs> while you emotionally are dying inside and we didn't notice because we're so stuck with the ceremony. You oh, know? By the way, it's also probably the second or last day of the month, right? Yeah. Yeah, because we got to make sure we get that in before we get in now. You know, oh, right now is not a good time for our family. It's not. Oh, why isn't it a good time? Your no, you think if we just come for five minutes because I got to report my number. You know, it's it's one of those problems with it was good intention. Yeah, yeah. And there are many people who did it right. And it doesn't mean it wasn't a blessing, but we have to be pruned a little bit. And that's so the thing. Like when, when John Whitmer is writing about good and honest disciples, he's not looking at these people saying, what the heck is wrong with these people? These people are all messed up and they should be condemned. You know, no, he's saying they're just not, they're just misaligned. You know, they're looking over here when they should be looking with icing oil to the glory of God. They should be following what they're being told and what they're being, what they're feeling, not what will be impressive or what will be, what will get other people excited or whatever, you know, and I, I just, I think, you know, what are the modern day parallels? I think, like you said, ministering was a good time when the Lord kind of said, we can make this better. We can make this less about tradition and formula and standardize this and that and make it more about the underlying principles of caring for one another. The, the missionary farewell, we can make it less about, you know, a production for an individual and more about, hey, let's let's make everyone think about missionary work for one Sunday. And let's use this as an opportunity to do that. Yeah, there, there's also this push to help every member of the church to know wherever they are in the world that they can worship and that there aren't degrees of discipleship in the church that no. the church in utah is not more righteous you know that this this idea that that we we have tiers of membership 
that oh you can go to Utah and have a live session and that's more important than any other you know like that, that there's even tears in temples you know and and there is this desire for the brethren and in all these changes to make it so everywhere we're all studying the same curriculum at the same time we have a set kind of schedule where come worship and the center of worship is Christ you know and this is not a new thing this happens all the time years ago the the pruning that occurred was hey testimony meeting is not a travel log is not this it's not calling out people in shame it's a simple <laughs> powerful testimony of your testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ it's not open mic night it's not you know just come air your grievances you know <laughs> those and it's not to say that those feelings aren't legit but there's a time and a place for everything just like there's a time and a place for your family to hear that you love them and it's not at the pulpit it's in a one-on-one -on -one scenario where you talk to them at home it just it's kind of everything we're doing is the gospel is doing is to drive us to live it every day one of the biggest impacts I've had recently was my elders quorum president we had a it was our first meeting back in elders quorum in person we've been doing it virtually for a while and he he read a quote and I think it was from President Nelson about quorums and it the essence was basically a quorum is more than a meeting and how we should not look at us meeting virtually as we are ineffective as a quorum that we should continue to look for ways to be effective because our quorum is more than a meeting and i've been thinking a lot about that and i would say the same thing our our discipleship and our religion is more than a church meeting it's more than a building it's more than these things and you know the this these are very powerful learnings that the saints are going through that they have been able to pass down to us with these scriptures that there is deception in the world and we can be well intended but if we're off by a few degrees kind of like president um Buchdorf mentioned if you're just off by two degrees it can and you leave like i think it was like new york you can either end up like in texas or california <laughs> like at the end of the day you know over a long distance of time. yeah and and we can see that we can see that right now it's a very heated time in our day where we have to choose are we going to follow the prophet you know follow the prophet follow the prophet he knows the way it's not follow the prophet he knows the way when it's convenient when it aligns with our beliefs when it doesn't ask us to humble ourselves and question what we believe it's follow the prophet and there are times when that's going to take faith that's going to take us being introspective if we're willing to do that we will avoid deception if we're not we will give power to these spirits or these ideologies floating around that will take our good intention and they will slowly start adding degrees to it until we end up in a place as many of these individuals who later become as communicator or disenchanted with the church think the false the prophet has fallen or they start taking revelations unto themselves you know i'm the prophet now you know <laughs> it's like and when we read it in the scripture it's black and white we're like oh how could they do that how could you know how could and it's as simple as in our day how are we doing it <laughs> how are we not following the prophet what are the temptations we have when they say hey we should try to be good global citizens obey the laws you know be cautious not everything is a you shouldn't fear great days are ahead be optimistic 
be kind to others, check in on each other. Instead, we try to like pick and you know pick and choose, and that's I don't there anyway. I'll be right. There, there is one more part in here that I thought was interesting. In in Doctrine and Covenants section 50, verse 7, but the question is, what is a hypocrite? And what is a hypocrite in God's eyes? It's probably the same as in ours. But verse 7, he says, Behold, verily I say unto you, there are hypocrites among you who have deceived some, which has given the adversary power, but behold, such shall be reclaimed. Go on to verse 8. But the hypocrites shall be detected and shall be cut off, either in life or in death, even as I will. And woe unto them who are cut off from my church, for the same are overcome of the world. In my mind, it's talking about people that are using faith, that are using those good intentions, knowingly to mislead people. Or to peddle their wares, yep. or to sell their political campaign, yep. or, you know, all of these things. <laughs> using using certain uh, figures from church history, from the scriptures, from whatever it might be, to push their own agenda. Or also just saying, you know, like, it doesn't have to necessarily be that, that cut and dried. It could be even just like, hey, brother, I know you remember the church, and I am too, and we're just trying to do the best thing we can you know, you should really look at what we're doing at my business or at my organization. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What does that have to do with my religion, my faith? You're you're trying to manipulate people intentionally based on their faith. There's also that last sentence, but behold, such shall be reclaimed, which I think it's, there are bad things that will happen to good people. Sometimes it will be someone in the church, someone that maybe has authority or power or has a calling that should know better. And they will deceive and leave people astray. But the Lord says they shall be reclaimed, meaning he's going to fix that. Well, yeah. You know, that pain or, or that hurt or that being taken advantage of, he's going to fix it, right? Well, and he knows their intentions. He knows if someone is following because they have been misled and they really do believe that they're doing the right thing. Describe that really. There are individuals who know know better, should know better, but don't do better. And that's a hypocrite. Yeah. Right? And when those individuals hurt others, those people that have been hurt will be reclaimed. They will be restored. They, they, the Lord has not forgotten them. That's one of the hardest things to, when you talk about the gospel, is when somebody's had a personal experience by someone who was supposed to be a, a vessel of good, and they ended up being a vessel of evil. And it's hard to separate that that, that was not the gospel. That was not the church. That was that person being a bad person. One way to avoid deception even with individuals that have good intentions. And it's always not a good intention, and then tomorrow is a bad intention. Sometimes it's a good intention, and it does a lot of good for years. And then it starts turning slowly, and then it ends in a bad place. And it's like that sometimes with sin, you know? You don't feel, with some things, you don't feel the immediate pain and damage and bad weight of sin right away. That's why Satan... He poisons you, like in the Book of Mormon, by degrees, just a little bit. Just 
come down, come meet me halfway. Okay, bring your guards, you know. You know, you know, when we talk about, we give that lesson about poisoning by degrees, and and we fail to look in our lives and say, well, how is by degrees, how how could these good things creep in and take you? How am I currently being poisoned by degrees? And who is trying to poison me by degrees? You know, maybe not an individual, but are there things in my life that are literally little by little just getting worse and worse and worse and I'm getting a little bit more used to it as I go until stuff that would have shocked me 10 years ago I'm kind of like oh yeah that's just the way it is like that's part of it too you know the this scripture one of my favorites is in second Nephi chapter 9 second Nephi chapter 9 verse 41 it says oh then my beloved brethren come unto the Lord the Holy One remember that his paths are righteous Behold, the way for man is narrow, but it lieth in a straight course before him. And the keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employeth no servant there. And there is none other way save it by, be by the gate, for he cannot be deceived, for the Lord God is his name. That's the most counter-hypocrite scripture I've ever heard. <laughs> because you're not going to get around him. You may be able to fool your bishop, you may be able to fool your spouse, you may be able to fool many people, but you're not going to fool the Lord. The day will come, the price always comes due, and sin has a terrible cost. And so we can decide, are we going to walk with the Lord and be open about our sins and seek his help to help us improve, or are we going to be hypocrites and hope that something magical happens and it didn't affect us and it will you know and that's the thing you know we we cannot the best way to avoid deception is to go straight to the lord and you cannot go to him and you cannot feel like your prayers are answered if you're not trying to live the gospel if you're not being sincere if you're not cultivating good habits a relationship with the lord is like a relationship with any other individual you have to take time, you have to cultivate it, you have to share, you have to give of yourself, give of your time. If you don't do that, it, then it's not a 911 magic fairy button. All of a sudden, <laughs> oh, now I need you, you know? Yeah. Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing, for we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.